Hi, Steph. Hi, Janet. So this year, 2024, is the 10th year since uh, the events that we now describe as the Yazidi genocide, where thousands of Yazidis who are living in northern Iraq around Mount Sinjar were killed by Islamic State fighters. Um, Boys were forced to become child soldiers and women and girls were sold into sexual slavery. The absolute number of people killed and abducted is unknown. And as we'll discuss, there are mass graves still being discovered to this day. But I did find some rough figures. I mean, they seem to be very broad. And I think that's also to do with uh, how difficult it is. The investigations are still going on. Somewhere between 5,000 and 10,000 Yazidis have been killed and enslaved. Over 400,000 have been internally displaced. Maybe half are still displaced of those and more than 6,000 were enslaved and over 2,600 women and children are still in the captivity of the Islamic State. And as the anniversary approaches of the atrocities in, in Mansinjar, I'm sure there will be a lot of discussion both about what happened and what kind of justice and accountability has been possible. I thought we could try and do a bit of a survey now at this point and then maybe later in the year we can look at some more specifics. And it seemed to be good to ask one of the main women working in this field, Natia Nazruzov, to help us with her take. She's heading up Yazda, that's the NGO representing the Yazidis, uh, their efforts at illegal accountability. And Yazda itself, of course, was just founded in 2014. Hi, Natia. Hi, Janet. Hi, Stephanie. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for making the time to talk to us. You know, you've been involved in this maybe also since 2014, but what is it like trying to gather evidence? What kind of difficulties do you encounter and how is Yazda, uh, your organization, going about uh, collecting these things? So I haven't been involved since 2014. 14 with Yazda, but I was directly, you know, affected by by these crimes because I'm Yazidi myself, not from Iraq, but from Georgia. So when these events happened, uh, of course, it obviously also had an impact on all of us. I was still a student at that time. I was studying law and I couldn't believe what I was seeing on television uh, unfolding in front of the whole world. So I finished studying and then I was looking for ways to support my community. And, you know, because I had this legal background, I thought maybe I can do something on the justice side. I had been following Yazda's work for some years by then. And um, at some point, you know, I had this opportunity to move to Iraq. So I really did not hesitate uh, for a second and moved there in 2018 and started to lead a documentation project that Yazda had actually established since 2015. And this project was really started because there was this need for the Yazidi community, which created Yazda, to make sure that ISIS crimes are documented. Yazidis were subjected to numerous other persecutions over generations, including my families. In the Yazidi community, we have many people with stories of, of genocide. So we wanted to make sure that this time the the crimes are are documented and things are not forgotten and so you you are leading this this documentation project now um, which was already ongoing uh, for a while what can you say about uh, what how much evidence what kind of things have you collected uh, over the years 
So the, the first type of evidence we have been collecting are survivors' testimonies. So early on, when survivors started to come back from captivity, they were looking for ways to express what had happened to them because it was so unimaginable that you know they needed to tell someone. And yes, that had started this, this project. And then we also went to Sinjar when the area started to be liberated. And we realized that ISIS had not only left behind hundreds of masqueries, but they also had destroyed Yazidi livelihoods, uh, tagged houses, saying this is now the property of the Islamic State, destroyed Yazidi cultural heritage, temples, shrines. So we have also documented these crime scenes. Okay, so that sounds like a very wide-ranging project, but also quite specific in terms of, you know, you're talking about, I suppose, specific crime scenes. So a crime scene suggests that you're going to then use the evidence somewhere in some kind of a trial or a process? Yes, so we did started this project with this more historical purpose, you know, make sure that there is a trace of, of you know, what happened and we can use it to raise awareness. But later on, we also, of course, realized that this, you know, was evidence that could be used to bring perpetrators to justice. So we started to, to find ways to use that evidence as such. And one of the first things Yazda did in 2015 was to bring some of this evidence to the ICC, uh, International Criminal Court. But unfortunately, at that time, it was you know concluded that the evidence of these, uh, especially foreigners we were uh, presenting, uh, were not, you know, these were not perpetrators who were enough mid to high level. So it did not move forward. And just a little ICC stephopedia here for, for the listeners who are not so much into it. So Iraq is not a member of the ICC, but um, there is a chance where you could possibly prosecute ISIS members who are also nationals of ICC member countries, because if they commit war crimes, crimes against humanity or genocide, even outside of their own country or abroad, they could be prosecuted by the ICC. But of course, the ICC focuses on high level and those most responsible for atrocities and crimes, or that's at least what they want to do. So that's why, uh, I guess, in this instance, they decided that these were two kind of small fry for what the ICC wanted to look into. So where else have you managed to to see trials happening? I'm thinking about some of these trials in Germany. Have Has your evidence then kind of transferred into those trials? And maybe you could describe a bit of that process and what those trials have been about. Uh, yes, Germany has been really the, the, the leading country in this process. Um, and it you know, started because Germany has, you know, a lot of experience in uh, investigating and prosecuting international crimes, but also because first a lot of Yazidi victims were taken to Germany uh, for treatment, psychological treatment. So in 2015, around 1,000 Yazidis were able to go to Germany. And then, you know, prosecutors, investigators could speak to them and collect the evidence in Germany. But of course, a lot of German nationals also joined ISIS. So there was an interest for Germany to investigate these people. When the first sort of real case was announced in the media, it was against a German national. And at that time, you know, German authority had an idea about the crimes she had uh, committed. However, they did not know about the whereabouts of, of the Yazidi victims in this case. 
how did they manage to identify the victims? Were you directly involved in, in making that connection for the prosecutors? We heard about this case uh, in the media and the facts were so specific that we realized that we had already interviewed a Yazidi survivor who were describing the exact same facts. So the case is about a mother, a Yazidi mother who was enslaved with her uh, little uh, daughter. And to punish her, uh, Jennifer W., who was then married to Taha AJ, who was later also prosecuted, would torture that little girl. And, and one day they attached her outside under the, the sun in, in Fallujah, Iraq. And because of the heat, the you know, she was very weak also physically and mistreated already. Um, she she died of, of this. And the mother, you know, when we interviewed her years later for our documentation project, described exactly these facts. So when we saw these this new news report, we went back to the statement and we clearly saw that she's mentioning a German woman and, and describing her very precisely. So we alerted our legal counsel, Amal Kruni, who has been working with us for some time now. And, you know, we made then the, the connection with the German authorities and with the Yazidi uh, survivor in this case. And, you know, we helped her to join the case in Germany and she participated in the proceeding. And Jennifer, Jennifer W. was convicted for crimes against humanity and war crimes. And later her husband, Taha A.J., was also arrested you know, prosecuted for the same crimes, and he was uh, convicted also for genocide. And this was the first genocide conviction of an ISIS member for crimes against Yazidis. I'm just trying to figure out how it would be for German prosecutors to get that call, because they have already had the case, they've done all the research, so they have all these facts. I'm, I'm sure they've looked for this woman, and then all of a sudden there's this call that actually... Here she is. We've already interviewed it. Here is the statement. We have some figures here of how much evidence you collected. We have now collected uh, around 2,500 witness uh, testimonies. These are uh, from, from Yazidi uh, survivors, um, but also people who, for example, fought ISIS. Um, these are stories that are not often told. You know, Yazidis are often portrayed as only victims, of course, survivors, but ultimately victims. But we also have spoken to people who stayed back in Sinjar and fought against ISIS. And these people have very, very interesting information because they were there on the mountain and, and they could see, you know, who was in charge, who was uh, controlling which area. And then the 150 crime scenes are crime scenes we documented in Sinjar because other parts of Iraq are still you know, not so accessible for us. For example, uh, when this trial against Jennifer W. was happening, the German authorities were very, very interested into some locations that the victim was, was describing, and we could not go there. And, and the perpetrators were from a tribe that is quite powerful. So, you know, we, we were not able to go to Fallujah and document these sites. But in Sinjar, uh, yeah, we have documented almost all the mass graves which were discovered when people came back to their areas. And just staying uh, in Europe for a, for a moment with these trials, you've described a little bit of Germany, but we we'll also know that in the Netherlands there's a ZDK starting, and I hear there's something maybe starting in Sweden as well. So can you explain what, what uh, more is going on? So I think after the 
first genocide conviction, our involvement as Yazda was quite out there. And, and I think uh, this is also when we started to get more attention. So more prosecutors, investigators started to reach out to us, um, you know, to, to ask us about information on their ongoing investigations. Um, and I was also able to present some of Yazda's work, uh, you know, the Genocide Network, for example, in The Hague, which is a gathering of uh, prosecutors and investigators. And, you know, we made these connections with countries also like the Netherlands and, and Sweden, and they already had started their own investigations into their own nationals. And, uh, you know, we were able to also get involved, uh, mainly because of our experience in Germany, and uh, to support the survivors in these cases as well. So beginning of a trend, expect a lot more, or is this just a trickle? Yeah, how do you characterize it? I mean, we want to stay hopeful and we expect more, also simply because a lot of the perpetrators who are still alive are right now detained in, in centers in, in Syria. And this is not sustainable. You know, I don't see this going on for another 10 years. So at some point, uh, countries will need to take back their nationals and to prosecute them for the crimes they have committed. And we want to make sure as Yazda and also with the evidence that we have that these crimes include international crimes and not just terrorism. But of course, on the other hand, with everything else that is happening, it's it's more and more difficult to push for these cases. You know, I was recently speaking to a prosecutor who told me, you know, 95% of what we're doing now is Ukraine, and then the rest is, is something else. Um, so yeah, that's something that is very, very hard for us to hear because, you know, so far there were nine convictions. We know that ISIS members came from more than 80 countries and there were thousands of people. So how come uh, after all these years, you know, there were only nine trials? Um, so, you know, this is something we need to to continue to push for as Yazda and other civil society organizations. Yeah, our, our regular listeners will know that we, in, in a previous podcast, also talked to Tanya Mera about the returning ISIS uh, wives and what they get uh, prosecuted for, and that there are also pushes to make it more uh, international crimes and not just membership of a terrorist organization. And a lot of these women are, are the ones that are on trial for the also for the crimes against Yazidis, um, often because the uh, Yazidi women were kept in the house where those women were also around them all the time. If we look at another big development kind of on your patch is that uh, we got the news last year that UNITAD, the UN Security Council tasked body looking into ISIS crimes, and it's called UNITAD because Daesh is the Arab acronym for ISIS, is being closed down later this year. So how do we say this uh, nicely? Has UNITAD done what it set out to do, do you think? So, yes, this is definitely some big news that we heard of, uh, you know, in September last year. But to me, it did not make enough noise. Uh, you know, I, I think that not enough was told about this topic by the international community. Taking, you know, a quick step back, um, Yazda and others advocated for the establishment of UNITAD back in 2016, and then it, the resolution was passed in 2017. So UNITAD at that time was a compromise because we were pushing for a court. We were asking the UN to create a court to prosecute ISIS because of the scale of the crimes and the number of, of you know, nationalities involved. 
Um, however, you know, because I think it's a it's a, a trend right now in international, you know, also law. There's not a lot of appetite to create these sort of mechanisms. So, the compromise was like, okay, look, we're gonna still document these crimes. We will investigate them, and then let's see what we're gonna do with it. And that was, I think, fine then. But I think there wasn't enough uh, discussions after that on on what's gonna happen with that evidence. So. UNITAD was set up primarily to support the Iraqi authorities to investigate and, and share with the Iraqi authorities. And I think, you know, ultimately UNITAD has done what it could do, right? It has collected the evidence. It has uh, spoken to hundreds of survivors, opened, uh, I think, 65 uh, mass graves in Iraq. But then, you know, I think Iraq also had to meet UNITAD halfway. And uh, one of the conditions for uh, Iraq to receive the, the evidence is, you know, to have a legislation in place that would allow Iraq to prosecute international crimes, because this is for what UNITAD was created. It was not created to support terrorism trials, which are the only trials right now happening in Iraq for, I mean, against Daesh. But Iraq has not passed such a law. And then, of course, for any UN mechanism to share evidence with the country, it has to ensure that trials will be fair, will be independent, and that UN standards will be followed. And again, Iraq has not showed such guarantees. So for Iraq to come and, and terminate uh, this mechanism in a way is very, very worrying. I'm wondering, Natia, what more UNITAD could do. I mean, it can't force the Iraqi government to do something. Iraq's a, a sovereign state. So at the end of the day, I mean, the pressure really has to be put on Iraq rather than on a UN mechanism, doesn't it, to, for them to adapt their system to, to actually get on and, and to do the, uh, the trials locally into these international crimes. Um, do you think that, that there's a possibility that Iraq will kind of take that burden on? I mean, this, yeah, this is exactly what we have been trying to do uh, since September. So with other NGOs, we have, you know, a few years back um, set up a coalition called the Coalition for Just Reparation. It is focusing on providing some justice pathways to survivors, make sure that they access reparations. And part of that reparations is, of course, criminal accountability. When the decision was made in September, we put a statement out very quickly showing our concerns. It was endorsed by 55 NGOs uh, working with different groups, uh, not just Yazidis, but other minorities and groups were also targeted in different areas of Iraq. And this was you know, a way to pressure the Iraqi authorities. We also sent them a letter and we told them, you know, we do not want UNITAD to end because UNITAD still has some work to do. There are concrete milestones that we think UNITAD should achieve be before it, it is, you know, ended. You know, ultimately UNITAD is not meant to be here forever, but still there are some steps that need to be taken, including for Iraq to pass a legislation and to, you know, show these guarantees that the UN is expecting. In our conversations with Iraq, you know, they do say that they will pass a legislation. And there's actually a draft law right now that is being proposed by the office of the Iraqi prime minister. And we are waiting for this draft law to go to the parliament so that we can provide recommendations and input. But even if such a law passes, you know, we are worried that Iraqi authorities 
might not follow survivor-centered approach. Uh, there are many things they need to put in place. Um, they need to first build the trust with survivors because many of them still don't want to give their testimonies to Iraq, although they have provided it to UNITAD. They haven't given consent for Iraq to receive it. And also they're very, very worried about their safety. They want strong witness protection. And a survivor was telling me recently, you know, even if there's witness protection unit created by Iraq, I, I want internationals to be involved because everything here is so political. Uh, you know, tribes were involved. ISIS was not just random people. It was neighbors. It was people who are still around, who are still, you know, sometimes pressuring and threatening survivors. So I think Iraq, even if they genuinely want to move this forward, they, they need support because, you know, we're talking of crimes that are happen at the large scale and also are so, you know, sensitive, politicized. And, and I think, you know, Iraq ultimately needs to listen to what survivors have to say as well. Part of what you're saying is also that maybe the UNITAD won't be able even to hand over the evidence because Iraq is not yet up to kind of the UN standards to receive that kind of evidence. And you also say that you have people who testified to UNITAD that have not given their consent to give the evidence to Iraq. So what then happens with those testimonies? Do they kind of stay in the UNITAD vault? Is there going to be a UN dusty chamber with all those evidences and Iraq is not going to go anywhere? Do you have any idea? Is there a, an exit plan that you've heard of? Yeah, so this is the one million question right now. This is really, you know, what we are trying to to understand. And so uh, the you know, UN Secretary General released a report a month ago, you know, answering the question of Iraq. So when Iraq asked UNITAD uh, and the Security Council, you know, to renew UNITAD's mandate only for a year, they also asked for all the evidence. And the Secretary General report is answering that question. So what they're saying is ultimately, of course, this evidence was collected for Iraq, but in the current situation and, you know, uh, based on the lack of the requirements I just described, it cannot be handed over to Iraq. So the risk now, and the report also says that, is that it ends up in a UN archive uh, and is not used unless, you know, more contributions are given by state, unless a sort of like uh, they call it, I think, repository mechanism is, is created and is given resources so that this mechanism can continue to process requests and make that evidence alive and, and available. And, you know, I have spoken also to survivors about this, this proposition, uh, you know, proposal from the, from the UN. And what they told me is that, of course, they want this evidence to be used. That's the reason they give it uh, to the UN. However, they think that this you know, way to move forward is too limited. What about all the mass graves that are still not exhumed? You know, They want this mechanism to have more power, more authority to do other work that still needs um, to be done. But I think the worst case scenario would really be that it ends up in a, in a, in a basement. And it, it would mean that you know, the UN and all countries have spent millions raised survivors' expectations, because let's not forget that survivors gave these statements with the expectation that it would be used someday. And now all of this is, is unclear and uncertain, and there's not enough communication on that topic. That does sound um, 
quite problematic. Let's just sort of put it very diplomatically. But uh, we will be having an interview with the UNITAD uh, head later this year. So uh, we'll definitely pick up some of your questions and uh, put them to, to him and uh, see what they say their solutions are going to be. I'm wondering if we can also just uh, try and think also about some of the practical issues that are concerned with with when you do actually get any accountability. When we were chatting before, Natia, you were telling me that there's, for example, that there's a specific Yazidi dialect called something like Shingali, and that just getting the information codified and available and then to get it uh, out to these different jurisdictions, which are working, I suppose, in German, in Swedish, in Dutch, on different languages, etc. What, what are you know? What are the the practical challenges that you're facing at the moment on trying to pull these different elements together? Yes. So you know, I, I think like many NGOs who start in an emergency situation, when when you start this sort of work of, of documentation. You don't really think first about having a system in place, about translation, about security, etc. This comes at the later stage and often you have already documented quite a lot and, and you need to, to go back to all this data. And this is what we have been doing for years now within our project. So we have been translating, as you said, from the Shingali accent mainly to English because all these other languages, you know, we don't have the resources, but we translate to English we are in the you know process also with the support of UNITA to migrate everything into a database. Uh, we already have one, but it's, it's quite basic. So we are trying to create one that is more sophisticated, that really allows to make linkages between perpetrators, victims, etc. And then, you know, we receive requests and process them. But of course, ultimately, we are a small NGO. We are a small team. And, you know, in our team, we also try to have not only investigators, people who can do the analysis, lawyers, but also psychologists who support the survivors and also the staff. Um, and my team is mainly composed of people from, from Sinjar who were all affected by the genocide, uh, either have missing relatives or, uh, you know, had to flee, ended up being on Sinjar Mountain for days, not knowing what's going to happen to them. And these people right now, you know, are working on this project, which I always think is, is just so powerful, just such a strong message, you know, also to tell ISIS that, you know, you did not um, manage to do what you were trying to do. But, you know, this requires resources. It requires to make sure that the team is not affected, you know, re-traumatized. So it, it's a slow process. And, you know, although we are supporting quite a lot of countries, resources are really scarce. And, you know, I'm also very afraid that, you know, if, if UNITAD's evidence is sort of like not usable and and, and par in parallel, uh, you know, we have to shut down at some point and it's going to leave a huge impunity gap. And it's also not fair to survivors. We have collected all these testimonies from them with the ultimate goal to, to use it, of course, with their consent always, but it needs to be used. If we look at the perpetrators, um, you evoked a bit the scene in Iraq today where uh, many uh, victims still live and they have to live alongside some perpetrators. It really reminded me of what is happening in Bosnia where there's people going to the supermarket and running into the guy who used to guide the guard their camp or something like that. 
But there are also perpetrators who are also uh, came back uh, to their own countries. How easy is it for these countries that are doing these universal jurisdiction cases with Yazidis to find perpetrators? What are the challenges that you that you come up against? Because a lot of people had uh, special uh, fighting names, nom de guerre, and things like that. Exactly, and and Stephanie, just to also go back to the example you just gave, we actually also had Yazidi survivors who told us that they encountered their perpetrators, you know, in outside of Iraq, in in you know, yeah, situations like supermarkets or on the bus. Um, so it's yeah, it's it's also happening in our situation and. What's very challenging is that, you know, ISIS was also very, very smart and in, in the way they were disguised uh, identities. So they were using, as you said, war names, kunyas. And it was often the case that survivors did not know the real name of, of those people. So in the testimonies they're sharing with us, they're identifying them with uh, these war names. And what we are trying to do to make this as useful as possible is that we ask them, you know, a lot of questions around these perpetrators. How did they look like? Were they married? Did they have children? Did they have any distinctive marks? Which language were they speaking? But, you know, when it comes to the language, for example, it's it's very difficult for, for Yazidi survivors. Whenever someone would speak English, you know, they would say they're Americans, but they might be British or Australians or, you know, so it's it's quite difficult. And you know, we have the testimonies, but we often don't have the identity of these perpetrators. And then on the other hand, countries uh, who have uh, resources and, and, you know, strong intelligence agencies have their real names, but don't have the, the testimonies or, you know, information on, on these survivors. So how to put that together? And, you know, 10 years later, we're still trying to find ways um, to do that. And ultimately, our work with war crimes units has helped us and and you know i think we are moving f- things forward um but it's often also that even if these uh, countries you know have the identity of these perpetrators these perpetrators are in syria or iraq and you know they're just investigating them for the time being in case they come back but the political will is often uh, lacking so you know judges prosecutors that I'm speaking to are ready. They want to do something, but their country is often just not bringing these people back. If we look a little bit beyond the court cases and that form of accountability, I mean, we know that there are many other forms of accountability for for people. One thing that's been quite striking to me is the mass graves and the feels like there's a lot of unexplored mass graves. And Who's in fact responsible for finding them, detecting them, getting hold of the evidence, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? I mean, I assume that comes under UNITAD. And then, what will happen when UNITAD closes? Will will you be able to carry on uh, finding these graves? Iraq, I think, is the country or one of the countries with the most mass graves in in the world and with the most missing people. Not only from what Daesh did, but also from previous con- conflicts, previous the previous regime committed a lot of crimes against you know many different groups here. So when when UNITAD came, the process of exhumation of crime scenes, mass graves left by ISIS started in in March two thousand nineteen, and and we were present to support the families. And since then, UNITAD exhumed uh, around sixty five mass graves in Iraq, which is a lot, but. 
you know, half of it still remains. As I said previously, our project is documenting mass graves. And we have, for now, identified around 20 mass graves in Sinjar that are still, still not exhumed. And as people return to their areas, they discover new mass graves. You know, they go back to their houses and, and there is a mass grave in the middle of, of the house with, you know, remains also on, on the surface sometimes. So it's it's very, very difficult. The main authority in charge of these exhumations is supposed to be Iraq. And they're doing, I know the, the team, um, it's called the Mass Graves Directorate. Uh, they, they're working on it and they're doing their best. But they themselves face a lot of challenges. They're understaffed. They don't have a lot of resources. And UNITAD was helping them and, and did a lot in, in supporting them. But that's also now the question. What's going to happen once UNITAD leaves? Who is going to take care of these graves? And in my consultations with survivors on this topic, this was really one of the main concerns. They kept saying, who's going to continue? And it's not just about exhumation, because once the remains are taken to Baghdad for identification, it requires a lot of technology, a lot of work, a lot of expertise, and actually a lot of remains that have been taken back like for years now, for maybe four years sometimes, still have not been identified. So, you know, that's that's also a, a big question mark. How is, will this process continue, especially once UNITAD is gone? And linked to the, the issue of the graves is also the broader issue of the missing people and uh, I guess also linked to the issue of the graves and identification. Earlier in February, there were some people again uh, liberated or or set free. What are the issues here with people who who return now? Because a lot of them were were captured when they were minors and even small children. Did they even know where they who they were when they were taken? In some cases, no. It's it's. Um... Exactly what, what's happening. So some people were um, just too young. So they forgot about their Yazidi identity. They're kept by families who, you know, tell them that they are part of their family. So that's something that, you know, unless someone goes and those DNA tests, it's, it's going to be very difficult to find these people. In, in some situations, actually, family themselves were able to trace uh, some of these children and and got them back, um, but it, you know we believe that many are still out there. So that's one reason people are still missing. The other reason is that some of them are scared to come back. Um, they're still uh, brainwashed by ISIS. ISIS was you know and is still telling them that their community will not take them back, and if they go back, they will be killed or rejected. Uh, so some of them stay uh, with them because of this fear. Others have especially women have um, children who were born out of, of rape sometimes multiple children and of course very you know naturally they they got attached to these children and you know they don't want to leave them behind and come back and currently in the Yazidi community it's it's very difficult for the community to accept um, these children because of you know you can imagine trauma you know the fact that the Yazidi uh, religion is also um, saying that, you know, both parents need to be Yazidi. So what is even the, the religion of that child? There are also legal challenges. Under Iraqi civil law, uh, children have to be registered under the religion of the father. So in this situation, you know, what 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 should we do? So it's very, very complicated, very complex issue. And, you know, women who do not have children, 
are also still missing because no one is is looking for them except for their families and and some smugglers that are called rescuers um, because I think smuggler is is not um, very very legal term but these are the people who are looking for their missing and ISIS again is smart because they are what they're doing is that they're asking these families for thousands of dollars uh, as as ransom and I had I mean I have experienced cases where the family you know was in contact with ISIS and the ISIS member were giving them a number um, to buy their relatives back and until the family could raise money the connection got lost like they got impatient and they thought okay they're not taking this seriously and then they they lost the trace uh, of, of their family member so we have stories like that and also stories where f- families have like thousands of dollars of debts now because they had to collect that money and you know get their sometimes five six family members back like that so yeah the, the issue of missing people is very very critical because a lot of people also cannot move on they're just waiting for their relatives to come back uh, and they're in this in between where they cannot you know move forward live in the past and and are waiting uh, for their relatives. One thing that keeps striking me with everything you're talking about Natia is the parallels with other situations like Syria where there's uh, different efforts at accountability, stuff happening across Europe, even some efforts at the International Court of Justice, failed efforts at the International Criminal Court, and uh, now the development of a new mechanism on missing persons. I mean, it. I'm kind of wondering why everybody's so kind of just working on their own small area. Would it not be a good idea if everybody kind of work together in these situations? No, I, I totally agree. I mean, especially in, and again, you know, I'm talking about Yazidis, but it also happened to other minorities. Um, you know, they were taken from from Iraq to Syria and then back and forth. It, it was a real like trade system. And yeah, I, I even when this um, mechanism on missing people for Syria was created, I thought, you know, why not on, on Iraq? Why not combine it? Uh, in a way, um, and also, you know, we have Triple I M working on, on Syria right now. UNITAD on Iraq, and you know, I I I, st- I was always wondering um, why they do not share also information between themselves. I mean, I was given some reason, but you know, they were not convincing to me. And then, as as a small NGO, we cannot also go and share with multiple agencies. It it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of efforts. So if there was more, yeah, some sort of coordination and, and things were done more holistically, uh, then that would also, uh, you know, serve the, the ultimate goal that if I think is, is the same for everyone to bring these perpetrators to justice. But I mean, what message is this all telling victims from the international community? I mean, is it sort of, here's a little bit of accountability and justice in the meantime, and then please shut up? This is, I think, the the, the feeling Yazidis have, um, because I think there was a lot of empathy at the beginning, and there is still some empathy right now. I mean, we had a lot of symbolic genocide recognitions, like 20 countries and institutions have recognized the Yazidi genocide. And now I, I also became a bit cynical about that. And I'm like, so what? You know, what what's next? Like, what do you actually will do in practice? How How is this going to change the life of the survivors we're working with every day. I think that the Yazidi case was also a little bit used by the international community, or not a little bit, but a lot to fight 
you know, mainly terrorism, fight ISIS, and then, you know, international crimes are acknowledged symbolically, but not prosecuted. I mean, we need a court. We That's as simple as that. I know there's no appetite and it costs a lot, but, you know, if you don't create a court for, uh, you know, to prosecute a group like ISIS, who controlled two countries, had people from dozens and dozens of, of countries and committed crimes against thousands, then who will you create a court against? I mean, I think these universal jurisdiction cases are important and should continue. But ultimately, what survivors want to see is, is more of a coordinated response, a global response to what was, a you know, and still is a global terrorist group. And in Iraq right now, unfortunately, we see ISIS rising again. A few uh, days ago, uh, al-Baghdadi's, uh, you know, wives and daughters were brought back from Turkey to, to Iraq. And the first thing that was done is that they gave interviews on, on YouTube, on an on online media platform. And the Yazidi community became very upset because these women were trying to portray themselves as, as victims. And I was thinking, you know, what we should have and, and be able to see is live streamed court sessions where these people are being prosecuted, not give them a platform from that for them to, you know, portray themselves as victims. So it was very upsetting. And, you know, as you said at the beginning, especially since this year marks the 10 commemoration of, of the attacks and, you know, some progress was made, but a lot of things still need to be done. Al-Baghdadi, of course, is one of the ISIS leaders, uh, in case uh, our, our listeners don't know the, the background. But this, everything you described is not only gut-wrenching about what happened, but it also is such a problem of, of international law and this accountability if there is not some kind of one court to focus the efforts on that it gets really fragmented and you don't know what you're documenting for and it goes a little way and then then you have to be happy with the kind of crumbs of of, of um, universal jurisdiction which of course it's great that that's happening but what you really want to see for something that's so obvious is this and that everybody seems to kind of get behind that, yes, this is a genocide. I mean, 20 countries recognizing something as a genocide is really a feat in this day and age. It's really wild uh, that there is not a court for this and that you're still fighting to get some centralized version of, of accountability. That's a very depressing uh, note to end the podcast on, but maybe it will spur some of our listeners on who have some influence to do something more about it. But we always end with questions, our asymmetrical haircuts questions that we didn't send you because you're not allowed to prepare them in beforehand. But one of them is, is there some aspect that you wanted to bring forward that we didn't specifically ask you about? This is your chance to make your case for the thing that we didn't ask you about that you really want to say? Yes. So I think that when it comes to ISIS crimes, especially against Yazidis, we often focus on, on criminal accountability and it's very, very important. And it's one of the top demands of, of survivors as well. But I think that we need to look beyond and we need to also think about other mechanisms. Like, for example, a truth commission, I think in our situation would be very, very relevant because of course, ISIS was the main per perpetrator, but how was ISIS able to control, again, you know, two countries, Iraq and, and Syria? And 
I think a truth commission would be able to uncover some of the, you know, failures of the system, of the security, you know, uh, system, of the judiciary system, and also un unveil the root causes of, of ISIS crimes, because Yazidis were not targeted just on the 3rd of August. They have been targeted in Iraq by groups like ISIS for hundreds of years. And even before 2014 and 2007, there was a bombing of two Yazidi villages with hundreds of people who, who were killed. So court cases will never, you know, um, talk about these things. And I think a truth commission in our situation would be very, very relevant. So if international community doesn't want to establish a court to prosecute ISIS, then I think the, the minimum would be to at least work on, you know, the truth, maybe with the truth commission. And our final question is always, can you tell us what is on your nightstand? What are you reading? What's in your podcast queue if you listen to podcasts or what's on your, I don't know, is there Netflix in Iraq or you know, what are you watching or what movie would you recommend? It doesn't have to be work related, but of course it can be. A lot of our, a lot of the people we interview don't do a lot different than, than deal with uh, war crimes, but some also have very uh, surprising ways to uh, get out of uh, their heads occasionally. So we were always curious, what do you do? Yes, so I love reading. I actually, um, when I was 10, my family moved to France and I was very, very scared not to make friends because I couldn't speak the French language. So I was reading all the time, even though I could not understand, you know, the books, I mean, the language uh, sometimes that I was reading, but I learned French like that. And I think right now I'm I'm reading some, uh, I love short stories. So I'm um, reading some short stories from um, Gar Garcia Marquez. I think when you do this work, it's very important to disconnect and, you know, to just think about other things. And, um, you know, reading has really been something that helped me to go through just some of the challenges I'm facing here. So, yeah, I would definitely recommend short stories from Garcia Marquez. They're really, really good. Thank you so much. And thank you for taking the time to talk to us and for explaining to us so eloquently what is going on and what really you need to happen. And I hope it really does happen for you. But we'll keep an eye on uh, this year how things develop with UNITAD and with efforts to, you know, we have this uh, Yazidi case in the Netherlands, which we'll be following, but, but all these things around there to kind of keep everybody updated and might get back to you as well during the year to see how things are going. Thank you so much. Thank you for, for your time. And I really enjoyed the, the discussion.